Shalom mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. means family. And we're the mishpocha, the family with a Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. Where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile finally come down to form one new man, one new humanity, getting ready, mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar or the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. Well, that's an understatement for my guest, Perry Stone. Now, Perry and I bump into each other usually once a year, and it's usually in Israel. It's usually at the same place. But before that, I had the high privilege of interviewing Perry and his father, Fred Stone, and uh, I have to tell you, I only spent a few minutes with your dad, uh, Perry, who is now in heaven, uh, but I was just so impressed with him. Um, uh, tell me just briefly uh, about your dad. Of all the people I've ever known, and I'm not saying it because he's my dad, I say this very sincerely, he was one of the greatest praying men. He had operated at some point in his life, I have seen all nine gifts of the Spirit operate in him. In one church in Louisville, I saw seven of the nine gifts of the Spirit operate in one service. And he was so sensitive to the Lord. He always said to me, a lot of people know how to pray, but a lot of people don't know how to hear. And you have to be able to hear just as you're able to pray. Just out of curiosity, did he ever tell you a prophecy about the future uh, that God gave him that has not come to pass yet. Yeah. Before he passed away, he saw, um, in, he, it was the vision of our yard. He said, when I looked out in the yard, there was a plastic a fork, a, uh, a knife, a fork, a knife, a fork, a knife. And it was, they were buried one-third in the ground, leaving two-thirds out. And I said, what does it mean? He said, well, at some point, he said, I don't have a time frame. There's going to be a food shortage come to the United States. Um Back at that time, right after that, we started hearing about the bees disappearing. Of course, that's still an issue that if the bees disappear, it actually takes out about a third of the food supply in the United States. And I'm not saying that's the fulfillment of it, but he was very specific that at some point that this was going to happen because the third under the ground meant a third of, you know, your three, that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So a third of your breakfast, lunch, and dinner was going to be removed, leaving just two-thirds left. And uh, I'm not saying it's that. It could be. It could be. A lack of rain, a, a temporary famine that comes, I'm not sure. But he was, he did see that um, very, very clearly. And he did tell me, he says, you're going to have to really, really pray and have the, the body of Christ to pray. And one of the things Sid, he told me before he passed away, he said, in, he said the Lord visited him. And I need, to, I need to share this with your radio audience. He said the Lord visited him and told him that as we come into, toward the time of the end, that ministers, uh, people in churches, and Christians especially, are going to come under very heavy pressure with mental thoughts and attacks in their mind they've never dealt with before. They're going to, he said some of it would even be sexual things and temptation with the opposite sex that they've never dealt with, never had to deal with. And he said, you tell them that the Lord spoke to me and said the solution is to pray excessively in the Holy Ghost, to use the prayer language. And isn't it interesting, when I became a believer in the early 70s, uh, there was the charismatic movement, full gospel businessmen, everyone was praying in the in supernatural languages. And today, it's even in the Spirit-filled churches, it's been demoted to the back room. 
And people do not realize the significance of Romans 8, how the Spirit of God makes intercession for our needs. And I think, I think, in fact, I know this, in our own meetings, we're seeing 50 to 300 people baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Sunday night services everywhere we go. There's a great revival. God's going to pour out His Spirit. And I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that the churches who are leaving out the... It's called seeker-sensitive. You don't want to offend a non-believer. And that's what's going on. And they're the ones that are booming. And the Bible says that tongues are assigned to the unbeliever. I've seen many thousands of unbelievers come to know the Lord after a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit in that manner. And uh, I always tell people, look, this is God's kingdom, and He knows how to run it. And we're not supposed to be running it. We're just supposed to be uh, supervisors and overseers over what he has entrusted us. Okay, let let me switch gears right now. You are considered a pioneer in understanding the Jewish roots of the faith. Uh, just out of curiosity, and you were raised in a Christian home, uh, how many generations of, of uh, pastors? Four generations of ministers. Mm. Oh, okay, so I guess from the very beginning— uh, you started studying the Old Testament and the Jewish roots. Yes. Uh, one of the things that happened, Sid, honestly, was I went to Israel for the first time in about, I forgot the date now, it was either 85 or 86. Got over there and saw two things and found out two things. Number one, that up in the northern Golan Heights, there were these large birds populating that did not used to be there, that after Israel won the war in 67, they started coming in. Um, and at different times of the year, they migrate, millions of them actually migrate to Israel during the spring and the fall. And I read that verse in Ezekiel that says that you know the, the flesh-eating birds would eat the birds of the captains and the kings in the Bashan area, which is the northern Golan Heights. I'm saying, hey, these birds are starting to populate that, that, that will eat the flesh of these men, according to the Bible. Uh, and I was intrigued by that. And the second thing I discovered was my, my, my friend Gideon, who is my main guide in Israel for my entire life, he has a brother-in-law from Tel Aviv who uh, helped to find all of the earthquake fault lines in Israel because he's a geologist. And there's a major fault line that runs across the Mount of Olives, which intrigued me because Zechariah 14 said that when the Lord returns, the Mount of Olives would split in two parts. One part would go to the east and one to the west. And that fault line, you can actually see part of it. It runs exactly the way the prophet saw it was going to run uh, when the Lord returns. Those two things set me on a trail of saying, wait a minute, I haven't heard this reported in the United States. Maybe I should research this further and let people know. That's what got me going in the in the vein of the prophetic, is to go to Israel for the very first time. And I know, Sid, you go. People have never gone. Sid, we go too, but Sid does a great trip. And like he said, we always meet up. We always end up drinking coffee at Bishan. It seems we always end up there. You need to go sometime with Sid because it it's just an absolutely incredible thing to see it happening and the deserts blossoming like a rose. Isaiah 35 talked about that. The Arevah, that's the Hebrew word, south of the Dead Sea, you know, 52 farms down there now. Uh, the miracle of the Dead Sea of Ezekiel 47 becoming two separate seas. One part is given to salt, one part... But, but wait, wait a second, Perry. You are sharing things from the Old Testament. Don't you know the modern teaching is that uh, God is finished with the Old Testament, finished with the Jewish people, finished with Israel as a special place? Come on now. Hey, to that I would say there are too many lazy preachers. <laughs> They just want to read 27 books instead of reading all 66 of them. Here's the, here's the fact. It's estimated that one-third of the actual prophecies that are listed in the Old Testament are 
yet to be fulfilled in some manner. One third of not, not the whole Bible, but the prophecies. Now, that tells you— A Christian is absolutely deficient if they don't read the entire Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. Absolutely, because the old, first of all, the Old Testament conceals the revelation of what's coming in the Messiah and, the, and coming to the earth. And the New Testament starts revealing that, which was already established by the prophets. But at the same time, look, look let's, take, let's take, for example, Zechariah chapter 12 to chapter 14. This whole section deals with a battle over the city of Jerusalem, nations coming against it. And at the end of this battle, which is Armageddon, Revelation 16, 16, the Lord will return to Jerusalem. And it, it tells you these incredible details. For example, it says this is the plague, how the Lord will plague the enemies of Israel. Their tongue melts in their mouth, their eyes melt in their socket. Now we know that can be the return of the Lord. The Bible says he destroys enemies with the brightness of his coming. However, let's take a look at that from the military perspective. There is a neutron bomb, and the neutron bomb, what it does when it goes off, it actually melts the skin of a person. Uh, it's, and I, I'm, you know, most people don't know this, but it has been tested before, and it actually leaves things intact, like certain buildings, certain vehicles, it leaves them intact, but it, it does something with the, the water that, you know, we're, we're like, what is it, 80% water, the human body is, and it just sucks that completely out of the body or out of any living thing, and it just basically leaves you know, a little bit of a skeletal remain. Is what, Which is what is described in Zechariah. It's exactly what's described. And again, it can be it could be the return of the Lord, which the Bible says He destroys His enemies with the brightness of His coming. You know, uh, you know, Harry. My thought is that the Jewish people missed the first coming of the Messiah. The majority, uh, the first followers, of course, were Jewish. I believe if we don't understand His second coming, many believers are going to miss his return, and they're all concealed, if you will. All the first coming of Jesus is concealed in the biblical feasts, and all the return of Jesus is concealed in the biblical feasts. That's that's one of the greatest points Sid you just made right there. The Moedim, which are the seven feasts of Israel, they are God's calendar. And they're not just God's calendar established for ancient Israel during the spring and the early summer and the fall months. The major prophecies of the Bible, up to the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is crucified right near the time of Passover. And Passover was, in Exodus 12, the, the Lamb and the Lamb's blood that brought redemption. Beginning there, they reveal the truth of what will happen in the future, not just the past. Uh, if we want to run through this real quick, you know, at Passover... You have the picture of the lamb being crucified, which parallels Exodus 12. And then they came out with, with unleavened bread. They did not put leaven in the bread. They didn't have time. So then we, after Passover, we come into unleavened bread. That's when Jesus, who had no leaven, leaven is a picture of sin. He is the sinless lamb of God. He is wrapped up in the linen in the tomb during that time. And then you have first fruit. There's a whole law of first fruits where the priest would go into the field he would get the first ripened grain, cut it, take it to the temple. He would offer a lamb on the altar before God early in the morning. Well, Jesus is, he's alive at first fruits. He shows himself alive to his disciples. He ascended to heaven between the time he's resurrected to the time he saw Thomas and said, touch me, and he, the time he saw his disciples later that evening. He ascended to heaven to present 
himself as first fruits before God with those Old Testament. I'll tell you what, hold that thought, Perry Stone. I want you to get a hold of his book. Every Christian in America must read this book, The Prophetic Future Concealed in Israel's Festivals. And then two DVDs. One is based on a vision that Perry had, mysterious events surrounding the catching away of the saints. And then the one for sure you're going to want to watch, America and the Fullness of the Gentiles, all available for a gift of $45. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. I just don't understand this, so I have my good friend Perry Stone on the phone. And Perry, I just don't understand when we look at the biblical Feasts. I mean, God doesn't say these are just Jewish feasts. He says these are my feasts. When we look at them, how come the early church tampered with them? And today, the average Gentile wants nothing to do with the Jewish feasts, uh, nothing to do with understanding them. Uh, and and for starters, we know uh, that the first feasts which are called the spring feasts, just fulfilled everything on the first coming of Jesus. And the uh, fall feasts will fulfill everything in the return of Jesus. How did all of this get taken out of the picture for the church? See, this is what I think This what happened as far as it relates to the Feast of Israel and kind of being... Uh, taken out of the Gentile branch of the church, especially around the 3rd and 4th century. Um, The 1st century church, without a doubt, was Jewish. In other words, the day of Pentecost was all 3,000 Jews being converted. Later on, 5,000 other Jews were converted. And so there was this strong Jewish emphasis. Now, that when the Gentiles were grafted into the covenant, the Gentiles struggled because there was a lot of idolatry, there was a lot of mixing of the Greek and Roman traditions, culture, 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 mythology, and all this that came in with the Gentile branch. Eventually, there was also a group of, of rabbis that existed. Some of this was even after the destruction of the temple. And these particular rabbis were not friendly toward the Jewish branch of Christianity or even toward the Jewish people who had converted to Christ or believed in, in, in the Messiah. And so there was a lot of writings, a lot of animosity that started breaking out against the leaders of the Christian church and some of these uh, rabbinical sources, rabbis, who were very uh, vehemently against the idea of Christ being the Messiah. By the time you get to, the, to let's say, the 3rd century to the 4th century, right in that era there, there seems to be a separation, especially from the time of Constantine forward, of trying to separate anything and everything that is Jewish out of the Christian branch of the church. Uh, you know, we all know this, and, and I don't make a, a personal issue. I tell people what Paul said. I said, you know, every man has to purpose in his own heart what he believes. But the original Sabbath was always Saturday, and of course that was changed. Then the feast became just things that were in the Old Covenant or Old Testament with no application today relating to their fulfillment prophetically or fulfillment through Christ. So I think it was the animosity that was started between bishops, uh, early fathers, with the argument from these uh, rabbis that were in Asia Minor, they were in parts of Europe, and it just caused this real 
uh, chasm to form between the two the two groups. What I'm thankful for is, you know, the Bible says in the book of Acts that that um, there's a restitution of all things that's spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets before the world began. And at this restitution of all things, it'll be a sign that Christ is about to be released from heaven and returned to the earth. I believe that among the restitution, a part of the restitution is Israel being restored as a, as a nation again in 1948, Jerusalem being reunited as the capital city of Israel after the Six-Day War in 1967, the Jews returning from you know Russia and other parts of the north, which began to take place, uh, of course, in in the uh, 1980s, and really continues all, all you know all to this day. Um, I believe that the real situation uh, that we're dealing with here is a lot of people. Let's say even in our time, are there's two things. One group is understanding this, understanding that this restitution is linked to Israel, the Jews, Jerusalem, and the Jewish people, because this is the words of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, when we know that Israel, the Jews, Jerusalem, and the Hebrew people are linked to the fulfillment of major prophecies that lead to the return of the Messiah, then we will change our attitude of how we view the Jews, Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel. And our attitude will be one of being very positive and understanding they have a major role to play, not only in the time of the end, but in the appearing of the Messiah. So that's why once people come to the knowledge of, let's say, how the feasts are fulfilled, how part of them are yet to be fulfilled. When they come to the knowledge of Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled, and they realize that Christianity, Christianity's roots are not in the Gentile pagan emperors of Rome. Christianity's roots are in Judaism. They're in the prophets of the Old Testament. And we get that root straightened out. You know, The, the, tr the tree can't have good fruit when it's got a bad root. When we get the root straightened out of who we are and our what I call Hebraic roots, we have an absolute better understanding of, oh, wow, this is, all, this is a part. We are a part of being grafted into the faith that Abraham had and this covenant that God made and our spiritual heirs with him. This is the reason why. Let me give you a nugget. This is the reason why when God appeared to Abraham, he showed him the sand of the earth and the stars of heaven. Stars are heavenly. Sand is earthly because Abraham would produce two distinct uh, seeds. One would be earthly, represented by sand, which would be the Jewish people with Jewish blood, Jewish DNA, Jewish mothers, who can trace their lineage back through 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 the Jewish people. The heavenly seed—that's the church. The church has heavenly promises. Israel, as a nation, has earthly promises. The promises of Israel, if you look at them all through the Old Testament, was a kingdom on earth, a Messiah on earth, a king on earth, land on earth, blessing on earth, blessing on the land. Look at the church's promises, heavenly city, New Jerusalem, Bigma, marriage supper. God had stars and sand, the stars being the church, the sand being the natural seed of Abraham, and the stars being the spiritual seed. And those little things of understanding that I think will better help prepare a person to understand the feast, uh, the Jewish faith, how it relates to Christianity, how that we're grafted in. I love that scripture about one new man, how the Jews and the Gentiles come to the understanding of Messiah through the prophets, the law and the prophets, and th through that become one new man in him. It's, uh, you know, that's, that's the part to me that's exciting about living today because um, people are coming to a knowledge all across the world, you know? 
But Perry, explain to me Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, and when that dawned on you, especially in reference to the feasts. Here's the thing about uh, the law. I, I have heard growing up, the law was done away with. Jesus did away with the law. Now, let's look at, let's look at first of all, that they're basically saying the Torah, five books of Moses, because that's all a part of what we call the law of God. If you do away with Torah, you've got to do away with the whole book of Genesis, which is the story of creation. You have to do away with understanding the history of the nations in chapter 11. You have to do away with uh, Abraham going on the mountain, which is a picture of Christ in in Genesis chapter 22. You have to do away with Numbers 19, which is the revelation of the ashes of the red heifer, which is a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. So that's point one. You've got to do away with all the symbolism that proves that Christ is the Messiah, which is found all through the Torah. The second thing is simply this. If you take the law of God, you can divide it up into the ceremonial law of God, you can, des- you can describe it into the sacrificial law and the moral law. The ceremonies are feast, Sabbaths, and new moons. Part of those have not yet been fulfilled in the Messiah. They will be in the future. The sacrificial law was all fulfilled through the Messiah, Christ, through his death and resurrection. The moral law of God still exists. I can take people and show you where God said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, in the, in the, in the Torah, and then show you in the New Testament He's still saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So, so when Paul says we're no longer under the law, he's talking about the law of animal sacrifices for atonement for sin, not about all those other things. Exactly. And, you know, so, well, here's the thing. I've heard people say, and I was going to mention this a minute, a minute ago, you know, when, when they talk about that the Lord has done away with the law, then you come into the New Testament and you see all this writing where he, God is still instructing people how to live, how to walk. Jesus, even in his team, he would he would tell people, you treat people this way, you don't do that, you treat you give people a glass of cold water, this, that, and the other. And what, what basically happens is this. I heard somebody say, you know, we've been redeemed uh, from the curse of the law. Well, let me ask you a question. That's good and that's true through Christ, but what about the blessing of the law? Because there were blessings placed on people for obeying God. And I've heard guys get up and talk about we're, we're redeemed uh, from the curse, but we're no longer under the law. And I would say to myself, no, wait a minute. You know, you're looking at law as a negative thing of just you don't, you don't, you don't. But look at God's blessing. I'll bless you coming in, bless you going out. Make that not the tale. You shall lend and not borrow. The, the ground should be blessed. The fruit of your womb should be blessed. Your family should be blessed. Your children should be blessed. Do you think I want to do away with those blessings? All I have to do is be obedient to the Word of God. And one thing, I wrote a book years ago on the breaking the Jewish code in it. I talked about this, and people were amazed because they said, we never thought about it. You can take all the Ten Commandments, exactly the way they're listed uh, in, in the Bible, and they're in the, they're in the Torah, and you can find the same exact ten right there in the New Testament. So when we talk about it, there's just I think there's this really confusion about people's perception of what we mean by law, because the ceremonial part, the sacrificial part, was fulfilled in Christ. That was Christ fulfilled the law. He was the lamb that was sacrificed. There's no more need of animal sacrifices. There's no more need of, of forgiveness through an animal blood. There's no more need of those sacrifices. That's what, when the New Testament talks about it, that's what it was talking about. Because there were Jewish people that were being persecuted in the book of Hebrews that left the, the faith 
the, the faith of, uh, in, in Messiah, and went back to the temple to offer sacrifices in order to appease people that were putting pressure on them for becoming Messianic believers. Uh, Perry, I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time. Perry, for those that don't understand the feasts, uh, there are seven major feasts, uh, and they're described in Leviticus chapter 23. Explain a little bit about these appointments and rehearsals. Let's look at it, first of all, from a practical perspective. God established what we would call harvest, seed planting, harvest, and rain cycles connecting with Israel. For example, in Israel, there's what's called the early and latter rain. You get winter rain from about, uh, it starts at the end of October sometimes, but November all the way through about about uh, February to March. And then you get, um, uh, uh, there's different seasons where there's a dry spell. For example, the summer is very dry. There's four months from June to about September when it can be, it can be very dry. He said, I want to establish a barley harvest, a wheat harvest, and a grape harvest. Your barley harvest will be in the spring. Your wheat harvest will be in early summer. Your grape harvest will be in the fall months. Now, around that, he centered seven feasts. And we're going to go through this really, really quickly. Passover is followed by unleavened bread, followed by first fruits, which is about a seven- to eight-day time frame, right in, right in the spring months of usually March and April. Then you count 50 days from the Sabbath after Passover, and you come to Pentecost. And Pentecost... Uh, Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50, 50th. It's a counting period. It's seven. You count seven weeks that times, 49 days, 50th day is the celebration of Pentecost. That represented, of course, the giving of the law uh, on Mount Sinai. Then there's a four-month period, and you come to the fall feast. They usually occur around September or October, and in the order, it's the seventh month on the Jewish calendar, the first day. That's called Feast of Trumpets. It's also known as Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish secular new year. You count 10 days from there, and you come to the Day of Atonement. And then five days from there starts a seven-day festival, which is called Tabernacles. Um, now, the, the thing about it is, again, they're centered on seed planting, harvest, and rain cycles. That's the natural explanation. But what God also did was he set these time frames out before humanity to pay attention to, to follow them, because he was letting us know great prophetic events are going to happen on these days. Now, let's look at Passover. Christ is crucified, as we know, prior to Passover. He's the Lamb of God hanging on the cross that takes away the sins of the world. Passover in Exodus 12, the first one, was a time of redemption for the nation of Israel through the blood of a lamb. Then Unleavened comes right after that at sunset, begins at sunset at Passover, the at sunset. And so that's when there's no leaven allowed in the house. The Jewish people take all the leaven out of their house in any any form. And unleavened bread represents how the children of Israel came out of bondage, but didn't have time to put leaven in their bread. Then first fruits developed later because there would be a harvest of barley. And what God wanted was to go for the priest to go into the barley field and, and, and present the first ripened uh, area of barley. They put a ring around it, and then they would tie that up and cut it with a with a sickle, and he would present it to God. And what happened is, by presenting the first fruit of barley, God would then bless the entire field for the remaining part of the harvest. Uh, uh, and of course, Christ, the fulfillment of that was Jesus' resurrection at first fruits. I mean, this is so cool. When when I say cool, that's my my, my daughter says, Dad, that's an old word. Find another word. <laughs> but but this is so neat. Uh, when Jesus is being raised from the dead, seen by Mary as the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, at the same time, the high priest 
at Jerusalem is coming out the eastern gate into a field and cutting the first fruits to present to God with a lamb at the temple. Same time frame. And I think that's totally fascinating. So we then come to Pentecost. Now, in the, the Bible tells us in Acts 2, 1 through 4, that the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on the believers on the Feast of Pentecost. The giving of the law, of course, is represented by Pentecost. And again, uh, it would be called Feast of Weeks uh, in the Torah, Feast of Weeks, because it's a counting of weeks. It's, it's counting seven weeks of seven days. And uh, that would be the name they used in the Torah. But in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, we, we see the word Pentecost, meaning 50. So the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and actually births a brand new life force on the earth, which would be called the ecclesia in Greek, or the called out ones that would be known as the church. And so um, when, when you see and identify uh, those particular feasts, you see that those four have already had uh, a fulfillment from Christ's uh, crucifixion all the way up to the birthing of the church. The three that have not yet had a total fulfillment, uh, we could say the Day of Atonement had partial fulfillment already through Christ's atoning work that he did for us on the cross. But in the three fall feasts, they, they are trumpets, then a Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Now what they represent, and this is an abbreviated version, is that the there's a hundred trumpet shofar blast sounded during the Feast of Trumpets. That is a picture of the dead in Christ being raised and the saints being caught up at the return of the Lord, the gathering together unto him. And again, the English word we've used on, a previous, on previous programs with you is rapture. But then, following the trumpets, you come into Day of Atonement. So here's the little clue here. Following the catching up of the saints, it will begin the seven-year tribulation period, which is the picture of the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was a day God judged Israel, but in the future it will represent the day God judges the world in the tribulation. And on the Day of Atonement, there's three groups, totally righteous, the totally unrighteous, and the in-between that have to make a decision. You can find those groups in the book of Revelation. The totally righteous, for example, during the tribulation would be the 144,000 Jews who were sealed with the seal of God. The totally unrighteous in the book of Revelation would be those who do not repent of the evil deeds that they did. They die lost. There's an in-between group who make their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, meaning they were not ready at the return of the Lord, but they are willing to die as martyrs. Revelation 6, chapter 7, chapter 20, verse 4 talk about this. And these are the ones who are in-between, but they make the decision to serve the Lord. All of that is the imagery of the Day of Atonement. But after the Day of Atonement, or prophetically after the Tribulation, we come into the Millennial Kingdom. And the uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is the seasons of our joy. It's the feast where Jews and Gentiles both join together in a major week of celebration, seven, seven days. And it also is a feast that represents the kingdom in which both the Jewish remnant and the Gentiles join together in the kingdom of God on earth. And uh, Christ rules from, you know, of course, Israel and the city of Jerusalem, which is an exciting thing to think about. Well, well you know, Perry, uh, in Leviticus 23... God says, these are my feasts. And in the Hebrew, he says, these are my appointments. Now, now, Perry, if you had a toothache and you had an appointment with the dentist, nothing would stop you from keeping that appointment. <laughs> uh, now, God says, these are not just the Jewish feasts. 
These are not just uh, the Bible feasts. He says these are my feasts or my appointments. But the thing that's even more exciting in Leviticus 23 is he says these are rehearsals. And in the, uh, he says these are uh, holy convocations. Uh, but in the Hebrew, the word convocation means rehearsals. So these are rehearsals of the first coming and the second coming. Why would anyone want to miss them? And, and see, one more thing, Sid, is in the fall feast, it's re- it, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. But in the feast, the spring feast, he came as the lamb to suffer. But in the feast, it's, he comes back as the lion of Judah to rule and reign. So as the Alpha, he was the suffering lamb. As the Omega, the in the end, he's the conquering king. So see, the feast actually speak of him being both lamb and lion which is the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world, the suffering Messiah, and the conquering Messiah. You, do, you know this, that Jewish rabbis believe basically, or many of them do, that the Messiah uh, was two different people. Uh, one was going to come and suffer, Messiah, son of Joseph, and one was going to rule and reign, Messiah, son of David. And there was, they, they missed the point that it's actually one person who is Christ, and he comes in two different time frames, uh, separated by actually almost 2,000 years, two different time frames, uh, one as the Lamb who suffers, that's the Messiah, son of Joseph, and the other is the Messiah, son of David, uh, who rules from the city of David with a resurrected King David and the resurrected saints, of course, from the city of Jerusalem. So there is so much to be found in these seven feasts and so much mystery to be... Uh, You have revelations I've just never seen before, but maybe it has something to do with the 80,000 hours that you studied the Bible and all the trips. How many trips have you made to Israel? Let's see. I think we're we're somewhere in 33 to 35. I've lost count, to be honest with you. (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. Tell me that the, uh, in Hanukkah, which even, even, even the ones that aren't the seven feasts that are talked about in Scripture in the New Testament, it's called the Festival of Lights. In Hanukkah, there, there's a prayer, and you take the first letter of the four words, and it spells Mashiach or Messiah. Tell me about that. Well, there's a system in the Jewish uh, belief, and, and, and this can be done with many different things, where you take a sentence in Hebrew and you drop down the first letter of every word to see if it spells something. And so this can be done, for example, in the Hanukkah prayer, but it also, one of the most interesting things, Sid, is when you take the name Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and you do research, which we've done this, and you translate it back to the Hebrew, out of the Greek, back to the Hebrew, and you drop down the first letter, Yeshua Hanazarek Vemelech Hehudim, uh, I think it's the pronunciation, and I don't have my notes in front of me, I'm trying to go from memory, but if you do that and drop down the first letter of every word in the Hebrew spelling of Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, it's yud Hey vav Hey, which is God's sacred name. And, you know, the, the, point, the point behind that is that uh, in, the, in the time of Passover, they would take a bronze name tag, a little tiny tag, and they would tie it to the neck of the lamb and put the family name on it to identify, you know, it was their lamb in case a lamb got... Uh, Perry, we're out of time, but it, it, it's unfair. You know so much. You know about, you so, know so much of how Judaism ties in with the roots of everything you read in the Old and New Covenant and the feast. I've, I've got to get your book, The Prophetic Future Concealed in Israel's Festivals, and the two DVDs. 
70s. The first one came from a vision of the rapture. It's called Mysterious Events Surrounding the Catching Away of the Saints. The second one, you want to know what's going to happen to America? It's called America in the Fullness of the Gentiles, available for a gift of $45. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. Perry, you have uncovered... Uh, such codes and mysteries in these feasts. Uh, some of them I've just never even pondered before. For for instance, if you just step down from the major seven feasts and you go to some of the other feasts like uh, 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 Purim, uh, which is based on the book of Esther, uh, the secret codes in them. Uh, tell me one revelation you got uh, on the Feast of Purim from the book of Esther. Well, that is the time, just for those who may not be familiar in your audience, Haman, who was an Agagite, who was a descendant of King Agag, you know, from that day, he was an enemy of the Jewish people. He sought a, a, a plan, a plot, a strategy, a conspiracy to have the Jews killed in all these 127 provinces that was being ruled by the king of Persia in that day. Uh, Esther became the queen. Isn't it uh, interesting that Persia is the ancient name for Iran? So there's a lot of parallels with today, but go ahead. Absolutely. And, and Iran is one of the big enemies of Israel, one of the big in the whole part of the world today, which is it's a repeat. And in this story, this is where it gets interesting. Haman becomes a picture of the Antichrist because he had ten sons, and they built ten gallows to kill the Jewish people. And that the ten sons, if you know, and I know you do, but for the audience, there's scriptures and prophecy in the book of Daniel and also the book of Revelation at the time of the end. There's going to be ten kings who will align themselves with the Antichrist in the destruction of the Jewish people in Israel. Now, in the story of Esther, the gallows that built for Haman, for, for the Jews, Haman's ten sons were hung on those gallows. And the Jewish people came out victorious because of a queen named Esther. Now, there's a lot of ways we can, we can look at Esther. For example, the woman in the book of Revelation giving travail is Israel. So Israel it can be compared to a woman in prophetic symbolism. So if we say that it, Esther is the woman, and, uh, or, or is Israel, and that Haman is the Antichrist, and the ten sons represent the ten kings, then what will happen is right at the time that it looks like the Jews are about to be annihilated, which would be toward the end of the tribulation, God is going to intervene, spare Israel, and Israel is going to prevail while the Antichrist and his ten kings are going to be destroyed. And it's it's like, and, and, and the scripture said that that can be used for this method of interpretation is Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10. The thing which has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. And of course, a similar passage is in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. So the bottom line of that passage is that to discover what's going to happen in the future, it has already occurred somewhere in the past. And it will repeat itself in history. Now, the the Jew, the Jew, the Jew Greeks, I'm sorry, the Greeks 
called this cyclical history that it starts at a point and will go around and end up back at the same point. So it's not a new belief or a new concept, but it's definitely found in the Bible because at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was a Joseph. At the end, there is another man named Joseph of Arimathea. In the beginning, there was a Herod, and in the end of Jesus' ministry, there's another Herod, but it's not the same one at the beginning of his birth. There's a Mary in the beginning. You see the name Mary at the end. He fasted for 40 days in the beginning of his ministry. He's seen alive for 40 days days at the conclusion of his ministry. Uh, he went up from the Mount of Olives. He will return to the Mount of Olives. So there's an example of how this um, uh, a way of, of understanding how the past reveals the future. And so this is the reason why that when when we do a lot of teaching, we try we do a lot of teaching on understanding the parts of stories in the Bible, the symbolism, the patterns that conceal future events. Well, let, let, let me ask you this question. Uh, we, we know that Satan has removed the, the feasts from the church pretty much. And as a result of removing the feasts, there's a lack of understanding on the return of Jesus. But that Satan even has gone further than that. He chooses the feasts that he's pushed out of the understanding of the Gentile church and he attacks, he has his big attacks on these biblical feasts. Uh, give me an example. Yeah, yeah. When I, you know, when I wrote the book on the, on the feast, one of the things I started researching, and I had never heard taught in my entire life, and I was amazed, is the number of times in the four Gospels that, the, that Satan either himself or using the Pharisees or using people who did not agree with Jesus, how many times it was always a feast day that the biggest attack came against Jesus and the biggest threats came against his life. Uh, either It was either during a Passover, sometimes it was around Pentecost, other times it was around the Feast of Tabernacles. The religious leaders who did not approve of his ministry, uh, here's an example, around the time of Passover, John 6, verse 4, there's a life-threatening storm that, that fills, the water fills the boat on the Sea of Galilee and almost takes the boat under. Then it passed over in John 11:55. The Pharisees sought to take Christ at the Temple Mount. Then at the Feast of Dedication, which really is an old English word for Hanukkah, it's the Feast of Hanukkah, the celebration of Hanukkah, in, uh, in John 10, uh, they rose up to try to stone him. And there's, there's about, you know, you can see it even in the book of Acts, where at different times, I mean, it was Passover, and James was beheaded at Passover, and after Passover, Herod was going to kill Peter. And so these, the, if this should tell us something, that these festivals that God has established are not only significant to God, but Satan must recognize some type of authority or spiritual power or authority that is released during those times of the year when these uh, Moedim or rehearsals or celebrations take place. There has to be some kind of... Uh, and, and, and let me ask you this question. I, I believe on these feasts, there are if you if you will, points of contact for an open heaven. It's not that you have to do it, but who wouldn't want to be worshiping God with an open heaven? And and if you think about this too, there were three of the seven, and it would be Passover, um, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Three of the seven that every man over twenty years of age had to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate in the presence of God those three feasts. It was mandatory and required for them to do so. And when you begin to... Uh, let's, look at, let's look, for example, the new moon. The new moon is when there's, you know, darkness in the sky. 
God required the blowing of the shofar during the new moon and also a particular offering of a blood offering to be offered during every new moon. Well, one of the reasons, I mean, this is interesting, Sid. If you go to India, you'll discover that the Hindu people are very afraid when there's no moon in the sky. And the Christian community has what's called new moon evangelistic meetings in which they bring these big stadium lights in. We had a team that just did this. And they invite the people from the town. They say, you're free to come out. And the people know, and the truth, that in the Hindu religion, that the, the spirits, there's more increase of demonic activity when the new moon takes place than any other time of the month. And they try to come where there's light and I have a videotape of just literally hundreds of people manifesting spirits and being delivered from them in the name of Yeshua because the power that's in his name defeats the intensity of the spiritual warfare. So see, God must have known that somehow, because there would be a darkness in the atmosphere, that there would be a more intensity of spiritual activity during that darkness, which is very evident uh, for those that do these type of meetings in the, in, the, in the nation of India. And so I think that what you said a moment ago, that one of the reasons Satan targets these particular time frames is because there's something he understands that something is happening. God's attention is focused at that season. God's attention toward giving and sacrificing and obedience is focused at that season. So, hey, why not put an attack? Think about this. When did the Syrians in 1973 attack Israel? They attacked Israel suddenly by a surprise attack on Yom Kippur. The day that all the Jewish people be fasting, the day that they are required to be in the synagogue if they're devout Jews, of course. But even beyond that, there's a somehow Satan has an insight. There's something so supernatural about these feasts. He's gone over time to hide them from the church. That's, that's, what in, that's what really stirred me the more I thought about what God said about these, these seven, seven different time frames in a year the significance of that particular time frame as it relates not only to like the, in the time of Israel, which was the harvest cycle and rain cycle, but there is a spiritual... Why, why does the Lord say, I'm going to allow uh, the Messiah to, uh, to bring a redemptive covenant at the time of Passover? Why? Why, why does God say, Holy Spirit, you will come on the Feast of Pentecost? Now, uh, but, but, the, but the biggest, the absolute, Perry, the absolute biggest reason that Satan does not want the church to understand God's feasts from the Old Testament, which most don't even read anymore, is they will not understand the return of the Messiah. They can't without the feasts. If you don't study his first coming, you will never understand his second coming. And to understand, and and to me, this is the thing, uh, especially when I deal with uh, uh, Jewish people that understand the Torah. When you see the details that God went through to establish. For example, in Exodus 12, there are three blood spots on the doorpost of every Jewish home in Egypt. Left post, right post, and top post. Now, why three? Because in the crucifixion story on Golgotha, there are three crosses. Christ is in the middle, and there's a man on the left and another man on the right. I mean, how detailed is that, for goodness sakes? Tell me the the meaning of these fall feasts? Well, when we talk about it from a prophetic perspective, we mentioned about how the four of them, from Passover to Pentecost, have had a fulfillment when Christ was here on earth, up to the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
we, we're coming into what we call the season of the fall feast. Now, let me tell you where we're at prophetically. If, I, if someone were to say, Perry, based on the feast right now, where are we at? I would say we are living at Pentecost. And let me explain. Pentecost was the birth of the church, and Pentecost was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would spread throughout the world. The two things that we have to do as believers is, number one, preach the gospel to the nations, Matthew 24, verse 14. The second thing that accompanies this is Acts chapter 2, where the Bible says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So the preaching of the gospel and the outpouring of the spirit are where we are at now. That's the assignment. So where we are now is we are at Pentecost preaching Christ is our Passover. Christ is resurrected from the dead. You must accept him to, to be born again and enter a redemptive covenant with him. Then we are looking into the future preaching to people. Christ is coming. There is a tribulation on the horizon. The kingdom of God is coming to the earth. That's the three fall feasts of trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. We are still in what we call the church age. Now, the Bible would call it the dispensation of the grace of God. Um, the Greek word dispensation is, I mean, the, the Greek word dispensation is oikonomia, and it's where we get the English word economy from. Now, basically what it means to be in the dispensation of God's grace is, as scholars would say it this way, the church is assigned by God or by the Lord to distribute and oversee his grace and the message of his grace to the nations of the world. So we are overseers or stewards is, a, is, a new, is an old English word. We are stewards of the grace of God in that we are the one who show people the way, show them how to be born again, show them the covenant. And then we have to say, now it's up to you. Do you believe that this is true? And if so, you can be saved. Now, in that, in, that, in line with that, where, what does that mean? Here's means, and uh, there are a lot of people in the body of Christ worldwide who say, well, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit's not for today. The Holy Spirit ceased in the second century, third century. All of this gifts of the Spirit, there's nothing to it, but they have to understand something. In the summer months of Israel, there's a terrible dry spell, almost no rain. People have pointed out to me, they said, Perry, what do you do with this idea that from the fourth century on, you don't see many gifts operating. You don't see a lot of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that all of this that you're preaching that's supposed to happen at the time of the end didn't already happen? And I point out this pattern. I say, if you understand that we're living at Pentecost, but we're headed toward trumpets, we're living now at the church age where we're, dist we're distributing the grace of God and we're living in the outpouring. As you get closer toward the Feast of Trumpets, which is a picture of the rapture, the atmosphere in Israel begins to change, the clouds begin to form, and the rain starts coming. So the, the imagery there for us today to understand as the body of Christ is, our goal right now is to preach the gospel and to experience the outpouring of the Spirit. But the outpouring of the Spirit is designed for the last days. Joel and Peter said it will come to pass in the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit. So as we get toward the last days, the days prior to Christ coming back to earth to catch up the saints to what we call it the rapture, there will come a transition in the world atmosphere, and there will be this magnificent final outpouring of the Spirit that will hit the nations in what's called the, 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 the latter rain. 
that's going to strike the, the nations of the world. And we're seeing the early stages of it all over the world now. But it's the closer we get toward the sounding of the trumpet, which is the imagery of the trumpets, the, the um, marvelous fifth feast of Israel, it's a picture of the rapture, then we're going to experience this tremendous, tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. So for the body of Christ, you know, we talked earlier about uh, America's position and what would maybe happen to America down the road, but for the body of Christ, if we will stay focused on God's Word, on God's commandments, on God's what He's told us to do in these days, and live for Him, and pray, and learn to seek Him, then we will be the beneficiary of one of the great blessings that's been promised to an end-time generation. Visions, dreams, servants, handmaidens, preaching, declaring the Word of God to the nations of the world that will climax, I believe, in the greatest ingathering of harvest, which is the saints of God being taken to heaven prior to the revealing of this man of sin that Paul talked about in Second Thessalonians 2. Now, the, the last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, um, I love that feast. It's the millennium reign. Tell me a few things from your research you found out that'll fascinate my listeners. One of, one of the things that's interesting about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is that the original uh, Word of God said that they were to build, build a booth. Now, what the Jewish people do, they take four types of branches. Uh, and again, this would be devout Jews. I'm not saying all Jews do this because some Jews are unbelievers and they wouldn't practice any of the feasts. But what they do is you, you, you live outside of your home. And in Jerusalem, you can see on the balconies of these apartments where they do this. And then they build a little shelter with these four types of branches, and you stay in that for a period of seven days. They eat out there, they talk out there, they eat breakfast, they drink their coffee. Now, in the old time, they would live out there for a period of seven days outside of their home under this booth because it represented Israel living under in the tents for a period of 40 years. What is interesting to me about the feast, and there's many things that you could get into, is that during this time, it's the one feast that both Jews and Gentiles come together to celebrate, and it's also known as the Seasons of Our Joy. Now, not in, not in the Torah, but later on, the Jews added a time called Rejoicing in the Torah, and they made an eighth day. Now, in the New Testament, it says, on, in Jesus, on the eighth day of the feast, Students said, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. One of the things they did uh, during the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam with a golden vessel, and he'd carry, he called it living water because it was flowing water from a, from a spring, and he would take it, and he would pour it out on the, uh, around the brass, brass altar at the temple, and he would start these scriptures with joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. And that's the setting that Jesus is saying, he that believes on me the Spirit's going to come upon him, and, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And so this rejoicing in the Torah is Jesus, who is the Word, the Messiah. We rejoice in him. So the great day of, the great day of rejoicing is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's interesting that the water-drawing ceremony was for two purposes. One is to ask God for this, the great rains that would come to soften the ground to make it ready for a great, uh, the seed to be sown properly and, and be blessed. 
And the other thing is for their for for the prayer that after the rain the great harvest would come. So it's about rain and harvest. Tabernacles is about rain and harvest. Well, read what happens when Jesus comes back. He sends his angels with the sound of a trumpet to gather the elect. And in that reference, it's the Jewish elect who have survived the tribulation from the four corners, north, south, east, and west of heaven of the earth, and bring them to the city of Jerusalem to worship him. So you, there you have the harvest. And then the Bible then in Zechariah talks about natural rain, uh, and how that the uh, the rain will come during that time as a sign of blessing and everybody will go up. This is interesting. Everybody in the millennium has to go up, according to the prophet Zechariah, everybody to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, it makes no sense to me, Perry, if uh, the feasts are mentioned in the Old Covenant, they're referred to as my feasts, my appointments by God himself. If they're all over the map in the New Testament, Jesus observed the feast. And then, as you say, in Zechariah, it says if the Gentile nations don't come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast in the millennium, there'll be no rain. Why in the world wouldn't someone want to understand the end time events? That's why your book is so important, The Prophetic Future Concealed in Israel's Festivals, and then the two DVDs, the mysterious events surrounding the catching away of the saints. It's, it came as a result of a vision you had. And then the future of America, America and the fullness of the Gentiles available for a gift of $45. This is the Shabbat broadcast. The Lord is blessing you right now. The Lord, he's smiling upon you right now. The Lord is surrounding you with his favor, with his protection right now. The Lord is gifting you right now. The Lord is giving you his shalom, his completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body right now in the name that is above every sickness and pain and disease. Yeshua HaMashiach Sikenu, Jesus the Messiah. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, 
send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.